It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for subscribing. Uh, That's the best way you can help out with the program. And you can also become a patron. Yes, patrons like Jonathan, Meredith, Dennis, Terrence and Teresa, Rebecca and Taylor, Yuri, Larry, David, Patty, Trudy. Thank you very much for becoming patrons uh, to support the show and, and, you know, keep me doing this and uh you can subscribe just go to the it's free and then you get the podcast delivered right to your phone or tablet every single day you don't have to worry about you know waiting to see the facebook post or the tweet or something you don't have to worry about that it'll just come right to your phone easy um and then by the way the pete calendar show is also where you go to get the link for the uh, patreon page where you can get exclusive content and participate like in the live streams we do that over there uh and you get the swag you get the bumper stickers and such so uh what do we got going on today um oh medicaid this was interesting a big audit (laughs) by the democratic state auditor of north carolina took a look at uh how mandy cohen the secretary of health and human services is running the medicaid operations after all she was brought here to do this uh the expansion of medicaid it's been hallmark of governor cooper's uh you know first term and uh his re-election he's all about expansion of the medicaid and uh the audit reveals some problems <laughs> we'll get into that uh also some of the uh latest proposals from the north carolina board of elections we'll get into that as well first you need to get into some cbd You know that, right? CBD products. I take some drops before I go to bed every night. Uh, The other night, Christy, uh, she went to bed and apparently did not sleep well. And the next morning, Christy was like, I couldn't, like, my mind just couldn't shut down. I was up like three or four times, just mind racing. And it's now become sort of this running joke. (laughs) I say, you know, (laughs) I take something for that myself. It's Grower's Hemp. Grower's Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract. Now, uh, they also have other CBD-infused products like uh, topicals, for example, and uh, this is the balm, they call it, the balm, B-A-L-M, get it? It's the balm. It's fantastic, and you use it for, uh, you know, your joints. It's a topical, so you got pain or something. Uh, One of our listeners used it for a burn, actually, and she said it worked fantastic. Uh, So you can try the balm, and if you use the promo code LOVE just for... The remainder of this month, February, for their Valentine's Day month-long promotion, you can buy one, get one free. The month of February only, so this month only, only have a couple more days left. Um, Use the promo code LOVE at checkout, and you buy one, you get one for free. See the website for details. But Pete, what's the website? Glad you asked. Growershemp.com. That's the website. Growershemp.com. These are North Carolina farmers, uh, and so you're going to get great quality. Because they control the whole process, you know, from the planting, the seed, all the way to the shelf. And uh, they uh, get you great quality and lower pricing. And you're helping to save North Carolina family farms. So go to uh, growershemp.com, promo code LOVE, buy one, get one for free. And as with all CBD products, here's the official disclaimer that government requires me to give you. 
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration, and the efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Nothing I have said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your health care provider. Please consult your health care professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. I think at one point, uh, maybe in the future here, I'm going to be able to get through that entire thing without taking a breath. It's pretty long. It's like five sentences. Uh, Anyway, go to growershemp.com, promo code LOVE from North Carolina Farmers to your home. Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. So we have an audit of the Medicaid program, not the entire program, a portion of it. And here's the, uh, the headline out of the North State Journal, Audit of Medicaid Reveals Millions in Overpayments Failure to properly verify providers. So uh, the audit was published by the Office of the North Carolina State Auditor, Beth Wood, came out uh, earlier this month. It sampled only a small portion of the roughly 90,000 Medicaid providers in the state. Okay, 90,000 providers that accept Medicaid. And Uh, Of the 191 approved applications that were sampled, so these are applications that come from the uh, from the providers to say, hey, I want to, you know, uh, offer Medicaid or accept Medicaid as payment for my services. I want to treat Medicaid patients. Right. So you have to apply. And of the 191 that they sampled, again, remember, there are 90,000 of these providers. They sampled 191 of them. And out of the 191, all but six, so 185 of them, all of them except six, never had their credentials verified. (laughs) And of the 191, you know how many of them had the ownership of the clinics verified? Zero. (laughs) It's just zero. They're just not doing it. Um, the audit says $11.4 million was paid out to these providers who are essentially uncredentialed. Okay. Here's the thing. If you're going to run this kind of a licensing, right, this kind of a credentialing operation, and then you get a ton of money for being credentialed or licensed, right, accepted into the program, then you kind of have to, you know, vet the people and do the credentialing process. Otherwise, it's not really a credentialing <laughs> process at all. It's just it's just a paperwork filing process. You just give them the paperwork and then you get your money. It's not even there's nobody even verifying this stuff. Uh, in response to the ownership check failures, the agency claimed that they aren't required to check for that information. So they didn't, apparently. So we're not required to do it. That's what they said despite the fact that the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services best practices include ownership checks and verifications with licensing boards. So it's their best practices that's recommended from CMMS or CMS. I don't know why they, the abbreviation for CMMS, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, but it always gets abbreviated down to CMS. I don't know what happens to the other M. It just disappears in that acronym for some reason. But um, their best practices is to do this kind of check to make sure that you're not just, you know, handing out free money to people who claim to be treating folks. Also, it's a way that you can guard against people who, you know, have been uh, 
you know, in trouble, that have lost privileges or something, that have been accused of wrongdoing, that are still practicing, and now they're getting taxpayer money and they're jeopardizing patients' lives, like that sort of thing, you know? Um, the uh, response from the Department of Health and Human Services, Secretary Mandy Cohen, she agreed that these checks are best practices and will look for ways to improve procedures and policies. Now, this is particularly interesting to me, at least, because um, Mandy Cohen came from CMS. <laughs> she came from the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. She was brought here by Governor Cooper <laughs> in order to expand Medicaid. He, she was supposed to be in charge of overseeing the expansion of Medicaid. So later on in the article, this is interesting, um, just three days after taking office in 2017, Governor Cooper said that he would use his executive authority to expand Medicaid under Obamacare. This despite a law that was passed in 2013 when the previous Democratic governor tried to do the same thing, Bev Perdue. She tried to do the same thing, right? Remember? Because Obamacare had passed and then there were lawsuits and the Supreme Court said basically states don't have to agree to this program. They, they can opt out. They don't have to be forced into expanding Medicaid. And uh, so North Carolina uh, had just been, you know, in 2010, the legislature had just uh, flipped to Republican control. And the Republicans were like, we're not interested in expanding Medicaid. And Governor Bev Perdue was like, well, I, I am interested in doing that. And so she tried to do it herself by fiat. And the legislature passed a law saying you can't do that. And uh, I believe it got litigated in the General Assembly one. Um, and Cooper then gets into office and he says, I'm going to do this, which is weird because he was attorney general. Like you would think he would remember the, the problem with this. Anyway, he moved forward with the idea. Republicans then petitioned the courts to stop him and they win because that was the law. And Cohen, um, Mandy Cohen at the time was the senior advisor to the administrator of CMS under the Obama administration. She was then picked by Cooper to be secretary of DHHS right around the same time that the court fight was occurring. So <laughs> you would think all of these folks would be up to speed on some of this stuff. But anyway, uh, a key finding was that the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services failure in identifying and removing providers with terminated, suspended, or limited professional licenses. The audit looked at 66 Medicaid providers that got disciplined by their licensing board. So this is a separate thing now. Now they're looking at 66 providers that had been disciplined. Of the 66, 26 had a suspended or terminated license. Those 26 were then examined further. Okay, so they're just whittling down to the, see this, this group of 26 and uh, wanted to see, okay, well, of the 26, how many of them got booted from the Medicaid program? Because if, you know, if you've been disciplined and you, you've had your license suspended or terminated, you shouldn't be practicing, right? It's, that's how this licensing program is supposed to work. So uh, they took a look at the 26. And of the 26, do you know how many uh, were not removed? So they did remove some. So that's a good, that, that's good, right? They They did remove a number of the 26. Do you know how many of the 26 they removed? <laughs> eight. <laughs> they removed eight. 18 were still practicing. Now, after the auditor found this, 
then 14 of those 18 uh, were were kicked. Okay, so they got removed after the audit came out. Whew, thank goodness. Um, as they as they should have been, right? As they should have been. Um, but the department um, was not apparently paying any attention to this. Now, there is more. It's This is not just a fiscal impact. Don't get me wrong. You know, mil- millions of dollars went to these providers, okay? But the failure to remove these people uh, puts the puts the patients at risk because a lot of the suspensions and terminations, according to the North State Journal, involve criminal activity. At least five examples were actually given in the audit, which included one provider whose patient died after oral surgery. And then a limitation was placed on a provider's license providing the treatment of female patients because the provider had a previous license limitation that required that a chaperone be present. Why? Because of past, multiple past sexual and professional misconduct allegations. So think about that. You go to a provider and they have to have a, a chaperone because they have a they have a past of multiple sexual and professional misconduct allegations. That puts patients at risk. This is why if you're going to run this kind of a licensing operation and you're going to credential people to be part of this taxpayer-funded program, then you kind of have to do the thing you say you're going to do, right? Some of the issues with weeding out ineligible providers were due to the Department of Health and Human Services failing to monitor the disciplinary reports from the professional state licensing boards as required by its own policy. So they're supposed to be looking at these things. To know, oh, look at that, you know, the Board of Dentistry just uh, kicked out, you know, Joe Smith. Uh, they just disciplined him, took his license. Like, you're supposed to be monitoring this, so this way you can stop any kind of payments, too, and that's the whole point. But apparently, the email system that got set up in 2015 to receive the reports from the boards uh, has not received any emails. They haven't gotten any emails, and nobody from the Health and Human Services Department fixed it. Think about that. This has been going on six years, six years. And ever so like at some point, do you realize I'm not getting any emails? Are you supposed to be <laughs> looking out for these things? Whose job was it? Or maybe it was just like, well, I didn't know what I didn't know. Is that the case? Well, according to the audit, quote, instead of investigating the lack of emails, the individual at the division responsible for receiving them reported to the management that there just were no disciplinary actions from the state licensing boards and did this every single month since 2015. And then the managers just accepted that. You're telling me nobody in the state of North Carolina has been disciplined in six years? Every month you get, you're, you're supposedly looking into this, you're monitoring all this, and every month not a single person has been disciplined at all in any of the medical professions. That sound weird to you? Like I'm not I'm not one that demands people be fired, but like this person, whoever was in charge of this, they obviously need to be reassigned, right? They obviously are not doing their job. Unlike Rowena Patton, who will do the job of getting your house sold, that's what she does. She and her entire team, the All Star Powerhouse team, they get homes sold fast and for more money. This is what they do. And they are very good at it. She outsells 99% of the real estate agents in the entire state of North Carolina. So put her to work for you, right? Get the house sold fast and for more money. And this means you're not stuck paying the double mortgage. Nobody wants that. If you're looking to buy, 
She has homes in all price points. If you are like Christy and me, we uh, could not find a house that we liked in our price point that did not require a whole bunch of work. And so uh, we found, uh, with Rowie and his help, we found a neighborhood that was being built. And uh, we're doing a, what's called a build to suit. So we get to make some, you know, we, we get to pick like some finishes and that sort of thing. Pick a floor plan and and whatnot. Um, and it's, it's fun because you get some control, but it's not like overwhelming, like you're building a whole house from scratch. Um, but Rowena does have advice on that too. Go to her website, mountainhomehunt.com. She's got information there and like sort of a cost breakdown that we, that was very helpful for us when we were considering whether to build. So, uh, yeah, because you don't know what you don't know when you're going into that process. And Rowena can help you. Give her a call, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com. Call her today and then start packing. So finally, from this article at the North State Journal, this is by uh, AP Dillon. She says, uh, or she has a quote in here from Senator Joyce Kravich. Kravich? Kravich? Kravich, I think. I Sorry, I don't... I, I know I probably pronounced it correctly the first time. Anyway, Senator Joyce, she is the um, do, do, do co-chair of the Senate Health Care Committee. She says Medicaid's a very large government-run program. It's not realistic to expect that there's never going to be any problems. But the oversight failures identified by the auditor seem so basic and so problematic that it raises serious questions about DHHS's ability to administer the program. Even worse... The very people responsible for these failures advocate for adding half a million more people to its roles. Senator Kravich's concerns are underscored by failures found in a previous audit in 2019. I'm old enough to remember 2019. Oh, those were the olden days. Yeah, you could just walk around, go into restaurants, crowded places. It was crazy. Anyway, this uh, 2019 audit by Beth Wood uh, her office found the department made improper payments of $100 million in Medicaid claims. It also found improper documentation and ineligibility issues, resulting in another $71 million net overpayment to Medicaid providers. This is why when they keep, when Governor Cooper keeps calling for an expansion to Medicaid, as a solution for like everything, <laughs> whatever, whatever the problem happens to be, Medicaid expansion will fix it. Um, this is why people like me don't automatically sign on. And I'm not going to be bullied with this BS line about, oh, don't you care about people's health? Right. When you are running a massive program like Medicaid and you've got the kinds of basic problems occurring and the kind of uh, gross overpayment that is occurring, the answer is not to expand the program. The answer is to fix it first. You fix it before you expand it. If Because here's the thing, and this is the thing that, always, and I've talked about this in the past, it really is quite amazing how the people who are all in on uh, you know the, the concept of government solving all of our problems, or most of them, right, uh, statists people who who you know value a bigger more intrusive expansive and powerful government um those folks they should be the ones who are most outraged at a program that is uh, wasting a bunch of money because again giving you the benefit of the doubt and i'm ascribing an altruistic motive to them here 
that they want these government programs to be large because they want to help as many people as possible. Well, if that's the case, then all of the waste and fraud and abuse, right, all of the money that's being wasted here in this Medicaid program in North Carolina is money that could have helped a ton of people. But for some reason, it's like they start the programs up and then they just move along. And then it's like, well, you know, okay, I understand there's going to be some fraud. I understand there's going to be some waste and abuse. I get that. But they're constantly looking to expand the program rather than to be, uh, you know, sticklers for competent management of these programs. You would think that the statists, you would think that big government, Democrats, liberals, progressives, you would think these people would be the ones who are you know, like watching these budgets like a hawk. And they're usually not. In this case, they're not. I mean, they're because the executive branch that runs DHHS, that runs the Medicaid program, they've obviously not been watching this. So it does make me wonder about the motivation. It does make me wonder if I'm ascribing an altruistic motivation that might not actually be appropriate. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Carolina Journal report by David Bass. Governor Roy Cooper's office created a new position, filling it with a longtime staffer from the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation, one of the top philanthropic funders of left-wing causes in North Carolina. The position is called a philanthropy liaison, and it's <laughs> the person named to the position is Joy Vermilion Heinsholm. Heinsson. Heinsson. Hainson. Hainson. Joy Vermilion. Anyway, she currently serves as the assistant director for the Reynolds Foundation and has been with that philanthropy in some capacity since 1998. She officially leaves. Uh, oh, she already left. She's already in the governor's office. And uh, oh, it's going to take effect on March 1st. So right around the bench. She's left her last position uh, earlier in the month. So she's already gone from there, but she's uh, going to be taken over March 1. According to a news release... The new role is grant-funded, although it's not obvious who the funder actually is, and questions from the Carolina Journal on the specific duties of the position, plus information on the source of its funding, uh, they were not returned. Z. Smith Reynolds uh, actually broke this news with a two-paragraph note on its website from Executive Director Mo Green. Uh, fun fact, Mo Green used to be the board attorney down in Charlotte-Mecklenburg for the school district, CMS. And uh, not that, not the Centers for Medicaid. No, no, no. Charlotte McElroy Schools. Yeah, he was the board attorney while I was a reporter down there. Then he went on to become a superintendent because that's where the money was. And, uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry, for the children. He did it for the children. And uh, he's a nice guy, uh, but, you know, educrat. And he went as, a, I think it was a Greensboro. Um, and now he's at the Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation. In a statement, to Carolina Journal, Senate Majority Leader Kathy Harrington noted that having an outside entity fund a state employee presents numerous conflict of interest challenges. Who's she going to be accountable to? The taxpayers or the liberal organizations that are funding her position? That's a fair question. The Reynolds Foundation is a stalwart funder of left-wing nonprofits and activism in the Tar Heel State. Uh, you'll recall Blueprint NC. Yeah, responsible for that famous memo back in 2013 uh, talking about uh, crippling and eviscerating Republican leaders so they couldn't do anything. Remember, legislate, cogitate, agitate, uh, litigate, eviscerate, 
right? The Reynolds Foundation gave $2 million to Blueprint NC. Uh, her hiring comes six months after the Reynolds Foundation pledged to give $50,000 to another task force created by Roy Cooper that uh, studied racial equity in the criminal justice system. So that was their money that did this. The hiring also appears to be another step in recent moves by the Cooper administration to tap talent from left-wing philanthropies for official government posts. Recall that he appointed Damon, uh, yeah, Damon Sircosta to the State Board of Elections. Sircosta, who was subsequently made chair of the Board of Elections, uh, is the executive director of the A.J. Fletcher Foundation. That's another top supporter of left-wing activism in North Carolina. Also, longtime Capital Broadcasting Company CEO Jim Goodman, he chairs the Fletcher Board. Uh, A.J. Fletcher Foundation's board of directors and his wife, Barbara Goodman, serves as the foundation's president. So this, like, by the way, uh, was it Civitas? They have a website called Mapping the Left, and they make all these connections so you can see them. All right. This is not some wild conspiracy theory. These folks all are in the same sort of cocktail circuit. You know, they're all in the same crowd. Um, They share an ideology. They uh, and they fund each other. The the wealthy among them fund all of these operators who then advance, you know, the unified goal, the unified mission of these people. And uh, the more you know the players, the more you see the connections. Um, speaking of connections, I want to give you a connection here to equipment. Okay, power equipment, for example, um, like big power, like like earth moving equipment bobcats and stuff like uh you want that kind of heavy duty machinery general equipment rental in weaverville they're at the intersection of merriman avenue and reams creek road family owned and operated and uh they are your source for that kind of equipment also if you just need some tools some smaller power equipment same place same source general equipment rental and uh, they've got everything from generators and tillers and hedge clippers, mowers. They do have the auto mowers too. I was talking about this around Christmas time. Uh, now that spring is approaching, have you thought about getting an auto mower? You'll never have to mow again. You just put this thing out in the yard and it cuts the whole yard. It's like a Roomba for the yard. I guess it would be a Yardba. It's the Husqvarna. It's pretty cool. It looks like the Batmobile. They got different models and stuff too. And by the way, uh, General Equipment Rental is your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. So they know these tools. They know this equipment. They can tell you all the differences year to year, model to model. So uh, when I'm I'm going and uh, I got to replenish all of my uh, equipment, my yard equipment, because when we sold our house, you know, five years ago, got rid of all the yard equipment. I'm not going to lug it around, put it in storage because we didn't know when we were going to be getting another house. So now I'm going to be going back to general equipment rental and I am going to have a bunch of new tools. Kind of looking forward to it. Got to say, kind of looking forward to it. General equipment rental in Weaverville, generalrents.com and think outside your toolbox. All right. So I mentioned the North Carolina Board of Elections. A couple things happened this week. Uh, First, they had their meeting. They had a regular meeting on Tuesday. Uh, And then the executive director of the Board of Elections, Karen Brinson Bell, um, she then went before the North Carolina House Elections Committee the next day uh, to talk about what she went over with the Board of Elections the previous night. And there's a bunch of stuff. So there's several stories that came out of these two days. First, uh, and this was the one that got all of the headlines, 
It was about the the changing and the timing, I should say, of the um, the elections, because this is 2021, obviously, and uh, you've got a lot of cities that hold their elections in these odd years, even years you got you know the big races, Senate, Congress, you know that kind of thing, and President, State House, State uh, Senate, uh, you know all of these other uh, most of the, the the big races occur in the even numbered years. In the odd-numbered years, then, you have these municipal races, and that means much lower turnout. And by the way, a lot of the uh, the local uh, elected officials, they like this. They like this. Why do they like it? Because it limits turnout. It, it keeps the turnout low, which means special interests, usually that put them into office, have an outsized influence. So generally speaking, now, don't get me wrong, the municipal people will tell you, well, just it gives us, you know, a lot of room where we don't have to compete with all of these other elected officials that are running for all of these other races. You know, people actually pay more attention to these local races, which is it's like it's not really true. OK, it's not true. <laughs> people are not. I mean, I do. But I pay attention to as many races as I can. And yes, for people like me, I get overwhelmed because I'm paying attention to a lot of races. But generally, you don't even know a town council election is happening, right? So anyway, so the, and again, there are pros and cons to these calendars. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not here to criticize municipalities for holding them in uh, odd-numbered years. Pros and cons to it. Um, so the census was done. And it's late. And because our districts and precincts and all that are uh, based off of the census figures, those delays in the census are now being felt in the redistricting process. And so because of that, Karen Brinson Bell, the elections director, is saying we need to postpone the 2021 election. Census date is five months behind. It's not scheduled to be released until fall, around September, I think. Uh, and so she's recommending that all municipal elections in the state be delayed until 2022. And there would be some um, uh, cost savings for that because 2022, is, it's already going to be an election year. So if you just throw the municipal races in there, you don't have to run an entirely new election. So there is some cost savings. Also, she says it'll reduce voter confusion, which may be the case, especially if you're trying to hold an election <laughs> or like a primary in October and then an election like a month later, not even like two weeks later or something like it, it, the whole thing could be upended. So it, it could reduce confusion. It could also increase confusion to some degree. Um this also has, I don't know if it's unintended, but all right, here it's a consequence. One of the ramifications, one of the effects here is going to be that if you were an elected official that was thinking about running for a different office, not for re-election, but a different office, you now would not be able to do so. See, if you're a city council member and your elections are in the odd years and you want to run for county commission, you can do that because you're a sitting city councilman and you're going to run for this county office in an even-numbered year while keeping your city seat. Here's the thing. North Carolina law does not allow you to run for two offices at the same time, but you can hold one office and run for another one. So what the practical implication is that you can never run for an office that is on the ballot as your own, right? 
You can't run for re-election. So, for example, if I'm a member of Congress and I have a two-year term and then the Senate seat, like uh, Richard Burr's seat, you know, that he's been holding, he's uh, he's not running for re-election. So that seat is coming open in 2022. So if I'm a member of Congress, I have to not run for re-election to my seat. I would not be able to file for both my seat and the Senate seat. I got to pick one. Well, if you're a city council member thinking about running for a county commission seat and the county's elected in the even-numbered years, and now they're going to push your election to the even-numbered year, <laughs> you're going to have to choose. You're not going to be able to hold on to your seat and run for the other one, like Asheville City Councilman Keith Young did. For, I should say former Asheville City Councilman Keith Young did. All right, so that's the first thing that came out of the Board of Elections. That was the first sort of update that they gave. Um, what else? Oh, they want to restrict poll watchers and they want to regulate yard signs and flags. Uh, this is according to Andrew Dunn at the Carolina Journal. Under current law, parties, the political parties, can appoint two observers in every precinct, as well as a list of at-large observers that can poll watch at multiple sites. Okay, so you, you can put up to two people in a precinct. And then you can have some others that are like roving, you know, they can kind of move around and what that it, it helps them relieve other people. But it also helps, for example, if you have a really heavy Democratic precinct and you literally don't have any Republicans that live in the precinct to go watch, <laughs> then you can have these at large observers come in and watch. They don't have to live in the precinct. OK, so uh, so that's that the poll watch two poll watchers of each party can be in a precinct at once. A new poll observer any a new poll observer uh, would be allowed to relieve their colleagues after four hours. OK, so there are all these rules about how to be an observer and all that. Um, the proposed change to this rule would now limit the total number of people who could observe a polling site to three per day, which eliminates a lot of the flexibility that the parties have to make sure that the precincts are all covered. I don't understand why this is necessary. Why would you do this as the Board of Elections? Like, why do you care? Why do you care how many observers they've had? Was there a problem? I'm not aware of any problems. It's not like they're saying, you know, free for all, you know, hundreds of people can be observers all over the place. What's with this limitation? Why are you trying to restrict people's access to being an observer? The GOP said it adds logistical burdens that compromise the faith in the elections. So that's another rule uh, that's being proposed. Uh, now, I'm not sure, will the uh, the elections director, I don't know, like, will, will she enter into an agreement if she gets sued by Mark Elias? God, by the way, I've got an update on that. <laughs> right, so, uh, right, because like, if the Democrats sue the Board of Elections over this thing, and then they're like, okay, well, you sued, I guess we should settle, and then they would just agree to whatever they won't all want anyway. But that's what they did last election cycle with the absentee ballots and such, which, by the way, came to a bit of a uh, friction point during the hearing <laughs> because Brinson Bell said, well, hang on a second. I can bring it up to you here. She said during the hearing that the Board of Elections did not change any laws in the last election. And that's just not true. M multiple courts told them they did. But she still says this. So this prompted a response from 
Ralph Heise, who is the, what is he, the chairman of the, yeah, the Senate Election Committee. He's one of the chairmen. He says, uh, Karen Brinson-Bell, the executive director of the State Board of Elections, who was handpicked by Governor Roy Cooper's campaign, yesterday falsely claimed that her improper secretive settlement deal with the National Democratic Party's top lawyer didn't actually change 2020 election laws. Brinson Bell's testimony directly contradicted the conclusions from multiple federal judges. In September 2020, the Board of Elections, which is controlled by the Democratic Party, secret because remember, Cooper sued and fought to ensure that the Democrats controlled the Board of Elections rather than making it a bipartisan Board of Elections. That's what Governor Cooper demanded um, and won. So they seek this Board of Elections secretly negotiated with the National Democratic Party's top lawyer, Mark Elias, to settle a lawsuit that sought to change voting laws during the election as we were voting. Okay, Early voting had begun, absentee voting had begun. The North Carolina General Assembly was also a defendant in this case. And they were never included in any of the settlement negotiations. They were, they were kept away. They, they, they did not even know this was happening. And then all of a sudden, there's this announcement that a settlement has been made, and it's going to the judge for approval. Think about that. You're a defendant in a lawsuit, and you are a co-defendant. There's somebody else also getting sued. And they cut a deal with their friends, who are the plaintiffs, and you have to abide by this deal? You weren't even included in the deal. Just take away from, from this scenario, just strip away any of the, like, the, the legality of it, because like, I'm not a lawyer, and so I'm not going to argue like this precedent and in this case and the you know whatever. I'm not going to argue any of that. Just from an ethical standpoint, how is that okay? How do you defend that from an ethical standpoint? I don't know, because I don't believe it to be ethical at all. Anyway, in the words of a federal judge, Ralph High says, the settlement deal struck between Democrats on the Board of Elections and the National Democratic Party's top lawyer eliminated the legal requirement for a witness to sign an absentee ballot. The settlement deal also increased from three days up to nine days the time period after Election Day within which absentee ballots may be received and counted. Right? These were the... These were the terms of the settlement that they agreed to. And that changed the law. That changed the law. Karen Brinson Bell, the director of the Board of Elections, along with the Attorney General Josh Stein, changed election laws after voting began. And they did it via secret negotiations and a settlement with their allies, including a Democrat judge. Three days, he says, Ralph, Senator Heiss says, three days is different from nine days, right? One signature is materially different than zero signatures. There's no room for interpretation here. Now, Will Duran at the News and Observer, he tweeted out um, as this hearing was going on, he sent a tweet saying uh, that, uh, you know, Brinson Bell says that they didn't, uh, that they changed the rules or something. And our friend, uh, Andy Jackson, at the John Locke Foundation, he says, not rules, law. They changed the law. And Duran said, well, that's apparently the, the nature of the debate. Like, wait a minute. You're arguing. So their position on this is that we just changed rules. We didn't change the law. The law is the rules. The law is the rules. I, I don't understand. What is the point of splitting that hair anyway? Again, 
it's unethical to have done this outside the presence and knowledge of one of the parties involved in the lawsuit. Um, what else uh, did they cover? Oh, hang on a second. Let me cover this. Old Grouch's military surplus. They got you covered. If you are looking for outdoor gear for the springtime, for your hiking trips, for your camping, for your fishing trips or whatever, get on over to Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. It's located on Main Street. Uh, has been for more than three decades, and they've got real U.S. military surplus. Tim is getting new stuff in all the time, so this isn't some place where you just go once and you're like, oh, okay, well, I've seen it. No, because there's constantly new stuff coming through, Like, and he posts this on his uh, his Facebook and his MeWe accounts as well, so you can see what he gets in. He had some body armor that came in recently. Uh, he also had uh, some MREs that were actually uh, apparently the standard is 12 meals per kit, and this had 14. So essentially it was a week's worth of food, two meals a day with enough calories, you know, for, you know, one week's worth of food for one person. Perfect for emergencies or, again, for, you know, camping and hiking, that sort of thing. So whatever your need is, if it's just for an outdoor adventure or you're planning for the Armageddon, whatever it is, go to Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. Shops open Monday through Saturday across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and online at oldgrouch.com. And, of course, as always, tell him that uh, you heard it here. So another rule that the Board of Elections is proposing it would define billboards as anything larger than three by five, three feet by five feet. All right. So think about that. Three feet by five feet. Does that sound like, yeah, that sounds like the Trump signs. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like the size of the Trump signs? <laughs> I mean, the big ones, not the small, you know, obviously like the yard sign ones are just, they'll, they'll, they'll be fine. But the bigger ones that I've seen, the ones that got vandalized, for example, in Asheville, those, I think those were bigger than three by five, but maybe not. Maybe those were three by five, but anything bigger than three by five, then uh, they want that to be um, called a billboard. Oh, three by five is the standard size of a flag. So the Trump flags as well, three by five. Now, if you go, what, four by six, that is illegal, apparently, under this proposed Rule change, <laughs> not a law. <laughs> it's a rule change, you see. They're different <laughs> to the Board of Elections. Now, don't get me wrong. This would still be punishable uh, under the law. This rule would. See, because that's what rules do. They punish you under the law. Anyway, billboards are subject to a strict disclosure requirement. That's what they're looking for here, meaning they have to include a statement of a certain size saying who paid for the product. People who display a billboard without the disclosure can be found guilty of a misdemeanor. So if your sign is four by six or three and a half by five and a half, and you don't put a paid for by whatever, then you are guilty of a misdemeanor for violating the rule, you see, the Board of Elections rule. The rule change could open up people who fly a campaign flag or display a barn sign, for example, something similar to these charges. GOP is not happy with this. A lot of people hand make their signs or flags and then they fly them at their homes and they put them up in their yard and they may not even know about this disclosure requirement. 
And finally, the Board of Elections uh, is asking lawmakers to fund a move into a national voter database. I'm actually okay with this. I think I took a look into it. This is an organization called the ERIC, or ERIC, the Electronic Registration Information Center. And it compiles and reports, uh, or sorry, yeah, it compiles and reports all of these, uh, uh, the voter rolls. So essentially, it's a database that allows states to share the voter registration information. And you can check who's registered in multiple places. And how many states are now involved in this? I want to say it's like 30. Yeah, 30 different states and D.C. are all in on it. Member states then submit voter registration information. Uh, States are then given reports on voters who have moved, who have died, who have registered in another state. So I'm on its face. I'm okay with this. Um, Of course, if, again, the General Assembly doesn't do what she asks on this, uh, I guess maybe she could just have Mark Elias sue again and then... They can enact it that way (laughs) because, well, it's not an end run around the legislature per se. It's just avoiding them to get what you want. See, it's totally different. (laughs) Uh, What else do we have here? Oh, this is from uh, also from AP Dillon. This is at her personal blog, Lady Liberty 1885 is the blog, LadyLiberty1885.com. The reintroduction this week of children to full-time instruction at school has been met with reports of abuse, emotional, mental, physical abuse in the Wake County public school system. I'll give you details on that in a minute. First, if your bed is abusive to you because it's so uncomfortable, like you lay in this thing. I mean, well, honestly, you did abuse it, right? That's why it's all deformed now. It's got these big, like a big crater in the middle of it because you've been sleeping on it for so long. You just roll right into the middle of it and then you can't get out and you pull a muscle trying to get out of bed. Like, get a new mattress. It's so easy to do at Mattress Man. Okay, this is where Christy and I got our mattress. We love it. It's a king-size memory foam. And the thing that we really love about the memory foam is that we get up at different times. So when she, when I get up in the mornings, because it used to be she would get up earlier than me, but now I get up earlier, and I don't disturb her when I do. It's easy for me to get out of the bed, and it doesn't move, you know? Our old bed, like, squeaked, you know? And, and it would kind of <laughs> it would bounce around when I would get out of the bed. So this one doesn't do that, and we like that. Um So, and our bed is now about eight years to nine years old, and we're thinking about getting a new bed shortly after we move into our new house. So we'll see how that goes as well. And when we do, we're going to go to Mattress Man. And they've got a great deal going on right now. The triple zero financing deal, zero money down, zero interest for 24 months, and zero payments for 90 days. And before the end of the month, take advantage of the President's Day sale. You can score a free box spring with the purchase of a Biltmore mattress or pick up a free adjustable base with the purchase of select mattresses so you can raise your head or your feet. It's got zero gravity settings and a wireless remote. Go into any of their four locations in Asheville, Arden, Hendersonville, uh, or go to their website, mattressmanstores.com, and check out the inventory. Let their sleep consultants help you pick the right mattress for you, okay? Five-star local delivery service, and they ship nationwide. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee, and 
um, they support this program. So if you want to support this program, support the businesses uh, that do so as well. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local, and sleep better. So at a couple different schools in Wake County, abuse allegations have been lodged. Uh, Though the week was interrupted by inclement weather, the days that students did attend brought a flurry of complaints of mistreatment of students across all grade levels in the district. Parents at Panther Creek High School reported that a teacher complained to students about having to return to the classroom and then blamed the students, calling them, quote, selfish plague rats, plague rats, which I think I saw them open for leftover salmon at Davidson College campus back in 1990. Okay, anyway, um, at Middle Creek High School, a student reports that at least three teachers engaged in, quote, freezing out students. And some teachers were also using fans, I guess, to increase ventilation. Like, this is, if this is not just petty, right, this is, this is paranoia. This is paranoia. Apparently, teachers had opened up all of the windows and then left them open during uh, class all day long, resulting in freezing classrooms, shivering students. At least one teacher at Middle Creek High forced all of her students to face away from her during class. (laughs) So it's like they're going back to the old Catholic mass protocol. (laughs) You're not allowed to look at the priestess of education at the front of the room. (laughs) These reports come from at least four elementary schools. Uh, that some students were being forced to eat breakfast and lunch sitting on the floor. In some cases, it was reported that kids were made to sit on the ground. <gasps> no, See, I'm okay with that. You're going to be forced to sit on the ground at some point in order to do this social distancing requirements. Like, okay, fine. Sitting on the ground is not that big of a deal. We were kids. We sat on the floor all the time. So uh, not that big of a deal. Of course, look what it did to me, right? So anyway, in in some cases, it was reported that kids were made to sit on the ground outdoors while facing a wall to eat meals while the temperature only rose into the mid-40s. Additional reports at Salem Inter- uh, Elementary, parents report that staff verbally harassed students sitting on the floor during breakfast, telling them constantly to move closer to the wall. Quote, Due to the social distancing requirements, some students are taking meals on the floor. Students are not required to wear a face mask uh, while eating, according to a district spokeswoman. So this is the issue, right? This is the issue. You're uh, feeding the kids, and while they're eating, they're not able to wear the mask. And so if you are of the paranoid persuasion Oh my gosh, I'm going to die when this child is eating. And so you put the kid on the floor, stick them in a corner facing a wall while they eat their food. Is this, I mean, just from a mental health perspective for the kids, I mean, the teacher that's doing this is a whole different, I mean, that is a whole different level of psychosis, right? But like for the kids, do you think this has some sort of an impact on them? I think it might. Really, like, I think it might. Children at Sycamore Creek Elementary, they were told during mealtimes to only remove their masks, to take a bite of their food, and then to put the mask back on to chew. (laughs) Isn't that what Cooper advised at some point? Again, I know I've said this before, I probably sound like a broken record on it, but once you know that Gallup study that was done, the polling that was done for Franklin Templeton Financial Advisors, whatever, back in, like, May, where they found... 
wild misperception of the risk of getting and dying from COVID. Um, that misperception was way greater among Democrats. And when you, when you know this information, a lot of this stuff makes sense. People are in the grips of mortal fear. And that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's really like that's me being charitable because the uncharitable opinion here is that they're punishing kids because they lost on a political issue. And that's just that would just be evil. So another report from Forest Pines said that the students were allowed to eat lunch facing only one direction and anybody found talking was removed. Dozens of students were turned away at Reedy Creek Elementary over the t- uh, the taking of the temperature. Parents reported uh, complaints that some thermometers were not working and the staff was barring entry to the school by refusing to do a second temperature check on a student to ensure a true reading. I can see that. I can see this being a problem. <laughs> Parent shows up to drop the kid off and, no, sorry, kid's a little too warm. Oh, that, that's wrong. Give me another reading. No, sorry, not going to do another reading. Go home. Yeah, that screws up your whole day. Additional complaints and reports from schools in Wake County include requiring masks to be worn outdoors during recess um, and limiting the access uh, to drinking water, including barring students from using water bottles in the classroom. Well, why would they do that? Well, think about it. If you got a water bottle in the classroom, then that means you're going to be pulling down the mask to drink from the water bottle. And oh my gosh, you're trying to kill me. I always feel the need to point this out, folks. 99% of the people that you encounter in your daily life are not a risk to you. You're not going to get COVID from them and you're not going to die from being in their presence. Okay? That's, That's just the data and the science. The science and data. That's the mantra, right? That's the incantation. That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a positive review, if you can, on your platform. Thanks so much. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com, and we'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.